MFI's mission isn't to tell everyone drug discovery is impossible, AI drug discovery, it's to enable everybody to do it, to make sure we get the data, the right ground truth and go for it. Because I think there's enough compute, there's enough molecular biology understanding out there now, but there is a missing link and that is associated with the ability to do the chemistry and the data. This is Signal, a podcast by Nucleate. At Signal, we bring you the stories behind the founders, thinkers, and leaders shaping the future of biotech. In each episode, we illuminate the people, exploring what drove them to make their remarkable contributions. Signal is part of Nucleate, a global student-led organization that empowers the next generation of biotech leaders by providing free tools and education to support founders. So today it's a great pleasure for us to welcome Lee Cronin to Signal. Lee Cronin, you're the Regis Professor of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow. And there you lead a group with interests that range quite wide in automating chemical synthesis, chemical computation, and even studying processes at the origin of life. And on top of this, you are the CEO of Chemify, um, a company whose broad aim is to digitize chemistry and ultimately to manufacture any chemical compound on demand. So to start off, I actually want to start with one of your tweets um, that you posted a couple of days ago, where you literally show a video of your robot and in the comment, you described that you are printing an anti-cancer drug in this portable chemical robot using programming language of chemistry. So I want to ask you what this machine is. But even before that, you know, how did you come to build devices like these? Wow, where do I start? Yeah, that, that was that was that was the mobile version of the uh, computing machine that was actually in Ojai, California, that I just performed in front of a billionaire, literally. And so I think it's the first time in history an anti-cancer drug was made up, you know, on a stage in a lecture. I had to work out not to gas anyone. <laughs> There's such a big story there. They say they say not to do a live demo. Can you imagine how bad that could have gone? Well, it went wrong. Well, it didn't go wrong. It almost went wrong. So it went wrong in right. the rehearsal. I was like, oh, no. And then because we had to put a Perspex screen on it, so it didn't affect anyone, because if it exploded or something, there was no danger of exploding, right? But when they put the perspex on it, they actually pulled out one of the cables on the stirrer. So, and I, in the demo, I knew I could hear the, the sound of the stirring in the glass. And that was my comfort blanket that my, because the reaction was only supposed to take 23 minutes. I was talking for 24 minutes, right? So it should be, and it should be a nice yellow powder at the end. It should all be beautiful. Didn't start. And I was like, it's not starting. And there's, there's like 200 people like, there were Hollywood people in the audience. There was astronauts. They were like, and I was like, oh no, the chemistry professors failed. But what the team did is they reprogrammed it because they realized that the stirrer stopped. But we have different functions for stirring. And one of the backup functions is blow nitrogen through liquid to agitate. So we had an agitate function. So they then put on the agitate. It's three minutes late, which meant the Lomastein was three minutes late at the end, but I was so relieved. But I had no idea that it was going to work because I couldn't hear the sound. So it was the most terrifying thing, actually. Don't ever do demos like that. But it worked, and people were impressed. And also, everyone thought I was just making that up. That, you know, it was failed. And I was like, no, I really was. Not very happy. <laughs> but let's go all the way back. So that little robot is actually a robot that I that DARPA helped fund. And, um, and it went way back into 
like, I don't know, at the early 20, 25, 26, 27, when I basically realized I wanted to build a search engine for chemistry to crack origin of life and find aliens like you do. That's the background story for Chemify, believe it or not. You know, I, I don't know what the background story is for Amazon or for Google or for all these companies, but the background story for Chemify is we're going to digitize chemical space to understand the transition to evolution. Transition to evolution is something that happens, should be happening all the time in the universe. And we think about the origin of life as some kind of one-off event. But the origin of life and also the origin of cancer, every day, origin of cancer may be related, I felt. But it's a search engine. So I was like, I want to build a search engine to search chemical space. How hard can it be? And then I figured that PhD students refused, even back then, to work more than, you know, I know that say what say let's work 14 hours a day, seven days a week doing those reactions. In fact, screw it, let's just walk, work 24 hours a day, no rest, nothing, even then, right? So obviously I'm joking. The point was doing manual experiments in a laboratory wasn't ever going to work. Um, so I figured, I said, oh, we need to digitize chemistry. How hard can that be? And the robots were really expensive and nothing was going to work and the software, no one wanted to write software. Just to just so I can orient this like historically, so I know there's sort of the latest Opentrons just was just announced. The company itself is years old, but you're talking about you said 2005, 2006. Um, that's years before Opentrons. The Hamilton robots are yeah, also yeah. like this precedes those as well. So when you talk about how expensive these robots are, also in terms of capabilities, I mean, how early are we talking in terms of w what you could even build? Yeah, what you, you, couldn't buy. Get, you couldn't even get microcontrollers. So it took me a few years to work this out and do it by hand. And then came then in 2011, 2012, I went to a workshop where a bunch of people were doing 3D printing. And I realized that I could get that 3D printer to Glasgow and build one and use all the microcontrollers and all that and the STL file, which is a little controlling file. And I basically used the 3D printer to print a test tube and then put um, tubes in the carriage and use that in adding liquid to the test tube mode. So it's almost like we made the world's first open trons, if you like, way before that, like a liquid handling gantry using a gantry, XY gantry on a, on a 3D printer. And that's how it got going. And, it got, and I got my team used to hacking those things. And then I said, right, we'll 3D print some drugs. 3D printing drugs, that's the best way to make organic chemists really angry because you can't 3D print a drug because obviously, but it's a play on words and of course, well, I don't mean 3D print, I mean do a chemical reactor, but reaction in this case, the 3D printer, I even announced this at TED, like I gave a, a main stage TED talk at TED Global in Edinburgh in one year, and it was I was on the main stage 18 minutes, terrified again, and no demo then. And then the next year I went up and did an audience participation talk, I said, wouldn't it be great for 3D print drugs, it shouldn't be that hard. And then I said, everyone went, go on then. So I went back to my research group and went, uh, we need to 3D print some drugs. And so we took a riprap, which is a good old fashioned 3D printer, and I and some, um, we use polypropylene, which is fairly chemically resistant. I 3D printed four pumps and connected each pump to a comport and to a reagent, 3D printed the test tube, and then squirted in all the reagents and made ibuprofen. We even used the heater on the 3D printer used to keep the, the plastic warm and did the shaker. So we did heating and shaking one thing. And that was probably the world's first kind of, you know, um, chemical reaction in a batch system that was programmed. So we, and then that's where the programming language start. That's a very long story, but it captures that kind of desktop kind of 3D printer. Fast forward a bit and then DARPA were like, we've got this program called Make It. We want to make any molecule anywhere. 
we've given a load of people money and different performers. Some are going to be using multi-millions of dollars to build a really complicated robot. We're going to give you X, where X is very small. Can you do it? And I was like, okay, why not? And um, that's why we made this form factor so big. And the robot that you saw Ursula on, on Twitter was like a 10, cost $10,000 to make. And in fact, it made 14 grand worth of product that day had we been able to sell it if it was FDA approved. I wouldn't sell that, but it, the fact that it, the, the chemistry was worth that was kind of cool. And, and Lee, you know, you've talked about chemistry as a search problem, wanting to find the origin of life. Um, and, and maybe in some sense, every chemistry problem is, is a search problem. Um, could you help us get a sense of scale when you talk about trying to find the origin of life? Like it's often thrown about that there may be 10 to the 60 possible drug-like small molecules, um, let alone thinking about the larger universe of possible molecules, different orders of attitude. Like how do you get a, your, your head around this is a tractable problem to search? Yeah, yeah the 10 to the 60 is a kind of odd number, right? Because it's enumerated. And, um, but I, I like that number, but let me go back. Let's for, um, so the numbers are big. So how many stars in, are, are there in the known universe? I think there's a mole. So 10 to the 23. Um, and so that's, that if you take uh, 18 milliliters of water, right? There's one mole of water. There's, there's as many molecules as water in that. And there are stars in the universe. That gets get you the number scale, size of the universe, number of molecules of water. Now, when it comes to the number of drug-like compounds, that was some chemiformaticians like going, I'm going to enumerate, 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 and not actually work out what's physically possible. But there's no question there's a large number of molecules. Is it that large? Probably not. And also, it's about how do you actually get to chemical space? Because you've got finite number of reagents you can buy, finite number of reactions. They're finite. That's the good news. I'm going to do them all. I, that's what I tell investors, and they go, what? It's like, oh, yeah, not really, because yeah, that would cost like, I don't know, it wouldn't actually cost that much. If you think about it, someone gave me $10 million tomorrow and say 10 years, I could probably go through every reagent in every reaction in chemistry forever, easy. And then for all of drug discovery, it would be done, right? It'd be a done problem, you know, and just think of what a resource that would be. Um, it's only $10 billion. However, uh, that's where you have to kind of, the um, the case for expending $10 billion on Lee Cronin's random fantasy versus let's build an architecture and validate it step-by-step step and show that it works and step, start. And what's the best case to show something like that works? Actually address problems that people need faster. Show the chemist, you can bring them on board. So is it as much as 10 to 60? It could be more. I'm kind of skeptical about that number because it's just such a large number, it doesn't mean anything. But 10 to the 23 means something to me uh it's a mold yeah in biology we always throw these like huge space of possible combinations but you actually kind of encourage to say that to, co to collapse that you can look at the relations between molecules and almost the trajectories of how molecules came to be that is one way to reduce the space of available molecules can you give insights to kind of the theory behind that yeah yeah no i have developed a theory which is related to the theory of evolution that will change our discovery where we know exactly where to look so we can start to predict things and exploit rather than retro, than just basically confirm what you already know. And that's going to be a massive shift. Obviously, I'm not going to tell you the details now because uh, that's literally, uh, if I'm right, and it's a big if, it's, it changes everything because I can predict what drugs I need to make with pretty high, pretty high confidence ahead of time. Just imagine that. Imagine I could say, right, on the basis of this, this, and this, I know what drugs to make.
And that would be that would be absolutely crazy. It's a bit like now, you know, on the basis of this, 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 what protein would you make? You could probably make a conjecture and say, oh, yeah, I'll make this protein. It won't destroy the cell. It might not work perfectly. Let's not destroy the main um, central part that is, uh, you know, catalytic or recognizing. And we so I, we've kind of got that level of insight. And so it, you're absolutely right. It's about understanding the trajectory in the space. The problem with a lot of AI and drug discovery and in molecular biology is that, that it's kind of there's no the ground truth does not yet exist. There is a ground truth in cats and dogs, I think. There's a ground truth in wolves and dogs, but it's not what you think. And there's a ground truth in some and some large language models, but there's not really the ground. You know, because actually it's all statistics that is kind of about um, overtraining, overtraining, overfitting, overtraining, overfitting, overtraining. And how many ask yourselves this, right? And also all the, people, the listeners who might be shouting this podcast going rubbish. How many drugs have actually been discovered by AI? How many that are in the clinic right now? Is it? In the clinic? It's probably like five or something. I mean, even if you, if you how do you how define small, discover? How it's many probably... small molecule drugs have been discovered ab initio in the clinic right now? using an AI demonstratively. Yeah. So that's kind of like, so we need to really calibrate things now, of course. Things have changed the last few years in COVID. Arguably, we've designed a vaccine from scratch. That You could argue that was a kind of AI. Well, good molecular biology, good sequence design. That's pretty amazing. So I think that that is one, right? But what we want to try and understand is how do we capture serendipity? And this is one of the things where I think that I'm so excited about Chemify because Chemify's mission isn't to tell everyone drug discovery is impossible, AI drug discovery, it's to enable everybody to do it, to make sure we get the data, the right ground truth and go for it. Because I think there's enough compute, there's enough molecular biology understanding out there now, but there is a missing link and that is associated with the ability to do the chemistry and the data. And also in the cell as well, the cell's hard. There's so many interesting things waiting to discover in the cell. How many Nobel prizes can we get by just like, you know, shining a different uh, kind of investigative technique on the cell biology. So many unknowns. So um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, I'm very good at not knowing anything, right? That's my that's my absolute best way to invent new technologies. It's not know how it works. Annoy everybody going, surely we can do it simpler. And everyone's like, no, we spent 20 years ago, but what about that over there? And everyone's like, oh, that won't work. So let's just try and it works. So if we overestimate how creative AI is, like how can you be creative? How can you be creative as a scientist, as an entrepreneur, but also even in the chemical space you're describing? All right, but let me correct one thing. People talk about generative AI, but that generative doesn't mean creative. Generative is a mathematical term that people that don't do AI don't understand what it means, right? Mm -hmm. It is not possible for an AI to be creative, impossible. And there again, there'll be people shouting on the screen, diffusion, blah, 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 large language models, nonsense. AI cannot generate data outside the data set. It can interpolate, it cannot extrapolate, right? And a good Popperian, um, and I think you're based in Oxford, right? So there's a guy in Oxford called David Deutsch, kind of think is awesome. Um, and I'm not, a, I'm a Bayesianist when I need to be, but really I'm Popperian because I need a ground truth. And so no, AI is not creative at all. It is not able to create. And um, we don't know why that is, right? You know, is there something missing in the way intelligence works? So, and so your question is, how do we harness that? So what we need to do is harness 
the ability of the human to interact with these huge data processing tools to take the creativity of the human and amplify it. And, you know, some examples where creativity might be gameplay. So um, I'm sure that um, DeepMind will claim that have created game playing. I, I don't know if I'm willing to concede that even, but they've able to do some pretty good moves, which will make people happy. And if a move generated by a computer makes me happy, and I think that's creative, sure, I'll give you that. But actually, in the strict term, AI is, this is the problem. We do not, this is the big problem. That actually, this is why the AI bubble is going to burst quite soon when the AGI doesn't come visit, <laughs> when large language models can be shown to be like just, just hallucinating nonsense um, beyond, you know, that's good. I can help me write a letter to express myself. And maybe it's like, take these three bullet points and make it sound fluffy. It's like, please don't offend anyone when I say your work is rubbish, please rewrite the paper and the figures are rubbish as well. Rewrite it in such a way that everyone gets good positive feedback, feels happy about it, but I get these three things done. That would be the brilliant thing to do with AI. Well, I wanted to push on that question a little bit more, um, maybe tying into kind of a, a functional definition of intelligence, right? Like um, almost, you know, the Turing test being um, when, when you can't, sort of differentiate between uh, human output on a thing versus uh, machine output on a thing. And can creativity fall into the same bucket as just another type of utility, another type of capability, uh, another type of output? Or is it fundamentally something different? Like, is there an extent to which you create a thing and it makes me feel I, it has the same utility as a creative, something we call a creative output of a human being, um, or does it just is it just sort of something completely different entirely? Um, yeah, there's so much here. How long do we have, right? It's going to be a long podcast, I think. So first of all, Turing's uh, thought experiment, he no, everyone interprets it wrongly. If you read the paper, he didn't propose a Turing test as that as for proof for intelligence. <laughs> so that's kind of cool, right? He didn't do that. Um, and the way that people- I, I don't mean proof of intelligence. I'm just I mean, saying- in, A yeah. test, but, but his Gedanken experiment is kind of interesting, yeah. right? Is the brain computational at its bottom? I think I have to concede it is. Do we have any layer of what that computation looks like? No way. We're so far away from understanding how the brain works. We are hundreds of years and about to get further away. Um, can we, I don't think there is a, so intelligence is interesting. It's a bit like, I don't know, love or life right aliens like i don't know how to define an alien but i'll know when i see one i don't know what love is but i'll define it when i'll know it when i feel it so so let's think about how intelligence was created before we do that because it's something that's very close to so i'm really interested in solving the following problems in order obviously building the billion dollar company that's terrified to, to discover all the ai drugs in symphony with all our partners out there and need us great done but i want to understand how do i how i can build a search engine that gets me the transition to evolution. That's number one. Then I want to go from transition to evolution to some kind of information processing, number two. Then from that information processing, I need to basically build abstractionism, the ability to abstract, and then consciousness. Now, which way around is it? Did consciousness come before abstraction? Now, why is this important? When fish came out of the sea onto land, they had to stop responding very quickly to being eaten so they could see the predator coming at them. And when you can see a predator come out, you go, oh, oh, I remember when I saw this happen to my mate, he's dead. All right, I now need to ability to remember what happened in the past, so that memory. I need now to ability to imagine what could happen in the future. I'm gonna get eaten. 
now I need to quickly act in the present to solve that problem. So intelligence is that synthesis that occurs when you basically remember the past, imagine the future and experience the present. I can't define it any better than that to solve a problem. And I'm no philosopher. And you can see from where I argue with people on Twitter, I always fail, right, at this thing. So it's so far above my pay grade, I just don't know. All I do know is we, it, it, we misuse the term AI and it, it, what it does is it allows, it, it gives a category ever when you're explaining, let's say you're explaining to an investor that you're using artificial intelligence to do something, but actually you're using matrix, matrix multiplication. You know, and then you work it out like, oh, I'm using matrix multiplication and interpolation. Oh, artificial intelligence sounds better. But people expect intelligence to do creative things. So I, I think is a, there's so much going to unfold in the next few months. And I'm probably digging a big hole for people to shout at me, which is fine because I can be corrected. But what I love about the current data collection strategies and AI and the, is the compute that's available. The architectures are available, the ability to solve protein structures consistent with the data we have and to check for anomalies later because we need to do that. And the ability to generate molecules of, uh, in large numbers and, 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 and iterate through them. And then if we can just get a fraction of that iteration that we make in the lab, then perhaps we might actually hit that ab initio, come up with a drug discovery beyond the COVID-19 you know, vaccine. That's kind of a long meandering answer to your question. If it's even an answer, I don't know. I apologize if not. It was a very creative answer. The creativity is something when you see it, right? If you've been to a, if you go to a, a concert and you hear someone play the piano or play some piece of music and you're blindfolded or something, right? And you wouldn't know. And then you listen to a robot doing it. Could you tell the difference? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, is it that there is some kind of conceptualization in your frontal cortex, right? Which means that you are not simply just pushing the notes, but you are creating the moon and the room in your head and you understand your audience and you understand how they're feeling and you can tweak, you know, you can tweak the music a bit and you can adapt it. That adaptive reasoning, again, remembering the past, being in the present and imagining the future. That's what intelligent is. Be able to do that, sure. But the only people who can do that are the actual drug discoverers, right? That is true. Um, and I wanted to ask, uh, you know, something that you tweeted about, I guess it was yesterday. Uh, this is where we mine all the, the most important bits. Um, so you said, when I lack theoretical understanding, I design, then physically build experiments to start to bridge the gap. And um, I, I find this quite interesting in the context of um, startups being an experiment. And often they say that sort of the best CEOs are those that are constantly running experiments, not, not you know, scientists, right? But like you have to iterate, you have to try things and fail and then try again. So I, I guess a provocative question is, I would have thought you tweeted that in the context of kind of your, your scientific um, directions, but in terms of the company, was there a theoretical understanding that you were reaching toward, and um, and and how do you think about experimentation in the context of putting on the CEO hat of Chemify? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. I, I I agree. It's both. It's actually both. I said it from the scientist's point of view, but it's how I approach everything. It's probably why I have not yet been fired from Chemify, and hopefully I never will be. Right? Because everyone's going to be so happy. Um, but yeah. So what was the original thesis? The original thesis was just. Give me all the money, you know, before the, the market went down. There's all this money out there. I'm going to make a search engine for chemical space. We'll figure it out. 
away you go. And I raised the seed and got going and uh, built the team and all that stuff. And it was all really exciting. And there was a point where I realized that like just two months after raising the seed, or no, sorry, after hiring my first employee, I, I went in the office one day, a couple of people building something, and I went in the lab and I was like, can you do this, this, and this? Connect these dots together. I don't care how you do it, just connect them together. They did it in 24 hours, I went in. And we basically invented a molecule, quantum mechanical idea of a molecule, make me a blue thing. They then went and put it, so they basically generated a blue thing using quantum mechanics, no chemistry, no. And then they generated the graph of the blue thing. Then they turned it into, into chemical code and put it in robot reagents. And it made it. And the compound came out and it was dark red. And I was like, oh my God, holy shit. Oh my gosh, what's happened? They went, no, 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 it's a phenol. Let's just have a base. I added the base and it went dark blue. And I was like, holy, it's going to work. And then I realized all of a sudden, so the underpinning technology was going to work in that we could be able to go from a quantum mechanical dream to actual physically making the molecule in the lab and then designing. And then I realized, right, underlying technology is it. Now that, that was kind of the hard bit, but that was the easy hard bit. So the iteration hasn't been in the technology. It's like, how do I, who's going to pay for this? How are they going to pay for it? They got this crazy chemistry professor who wants to crack the origin of life. And are you selling me machines? Are you selling me software? Are you selling me magic? What are you selling? And so what we had to do is a, is, a, is a shed load of iterative experiments on how do we access you? How do we build a partnership with you? How do we give you what you need tomorrow? And allow and with confidence in us and build the infrastructure for chemistry. So how can you invest in our railway road that is going to go all through chemistry? and get to the station you need to get to quicker than anyone else. And that's what we've just cracked. And we've just cracked it by that experimental approach, by going back and actually raising my Series A during the last few months. So it's now, what, um, June uh, 2023. I started raising the Series A. It seemed like a little long ago, but it was not that long ago in the hardest market ever, I think. And the fact that we were able to do it um, is uh, because the investors were like, you're not going away, huh? You're not taking no for an answer. Let me explain to you why it ain't gonna work in my eyes. Where's your market? Where's the product? How's it gonna fit? And I was like, okay, we'll try that. And said, no, closer, no. And we kept iterating and working out what we could do to demo um, this and we and we have hit it. And that for me, I mean, we're not all done, right? <laughs> I'm sure there's so many problems to come, but we have a highly motivated team and by hitting that, we're able to secure the funding, secure the people, secure the momentum, secure partners, and just get up this, this amazing journey where everyone accepts we're a startup and we're not going to turn lead into gold. Not yet. That's the alchemator. That's like, you know, in a nuclear reactor, we probably could turn lead into gold, but that's another, that's another pitch. <laughs> um, but literally having that very fast cycle of, you know, of iteration and acceleration is so important. And I learned a lot in the last six months. And I realized that I do this all the time in my lab. Absolutely. But but just to loop back precisely, so even before you were iterating on these partnerships, like what are the origin stories of Chemify where you decide or these aims will best be pursued with a company rather than an academic lab? And why I think the answer you might give would be so important is because often we encounter people through our, our nonprofit Nucleate who say, why would I ever start a company? I'm just interested in building this, this instrument or in solving this scientific question. And so I think it's very interesting for our audience to hear from someone that started out with 
a, a very, very um, sort of scientific question, which is what is the origin of, or where, where can we find, sorry, not, not what is the origin, but where can we oh, find? No, no, you, maybe... I'll let it, I'll let you have it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's yeah. so important. I mean, I don't know, right. Going back 20 years ago when I, when I started as an academic, I mean, it's a little bit more than that now. Um, would I imagine I was going to start a company? I never really thought about it. And then I saw some people starting companies and looked really hard and investors in the UK were like, they didn't want to actually invest in risk. They wanted to invest in no risk. And I just thought it was kind of nonsensical. So I loved getting research grants because it's all about risk, right? Or saying, look, I'm going to do this thing. You know, there's some risk. Here's my credentials here. I'm going to do it. That's great. And I love academia. And I think academia is a great place, but there are limitations. And there are limitations with respect to the, the, um, the uh, incentives. And so, um, as you probably indicate, I've indicated, I'm, I'm not the most conventional person. I'm not trying to maximize my ability to get a Nobel Prize or in the Royal Society or, you know, whatever, whatever prizes I might get with an H index, even if I knew what my H index was, right? Um, I do love publishing, though, and I love publishing in good journals, not because I want to say, oh, yeah, I've published in Nature, I've published in Science, I've published in this, that, and the other. It's because I want people to read it. So when someone says to me, I've got a nature, I've got a science, I'm like, right, but can you tell me what you did? And actually some of them can't. And I'm like, oh gosh. So I really love science. I really love doing science. I really love solving problems. What I realized, however, is that the problem I tune, and I, and I haven't given up science, right? I'm the CEO of Chemify, but I haven't given up science. What I've decided is academia is not the way to build the technology and it's never set up that way. And chemistry is a really interesting example culturally. Got all these people doing crazy things, fantastic. But I want to change the culture of chemistry earnestly. I really do. And I want everybody to stop doing manual labor in the lab that's needless and make things reproducible. Because actually, I want to put the world's chemistry labs together to do like a SETI at home. You know, that SETI at home, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence at home, where everyone wears, use their computer to process some part of the radio, sequency, the radio frequency. Wouldn't it be great if all the connected labs in the world, we could bid for a drug discovery problem. And by day, we do a lot of cool stuff. And by night, we make some drugs for the universe and we get paid, you know, I don't know. But that clearly wasn't the work because there's no infrastructure. So, and then it's not that I became jaded it's that I became frustrated that academia wouldn't fantastic take my technology seriously. When I came up with the computer and the idea of programming chemistry, everyone said, you're talking nonsense, it won't work. And I was like, oh, okay, why? And because no one could say why, I kept going, kept going, kept going. And I realized one day when the, the system was working that actually this could actually work for other people. And so that's when I, I think, and I started a company to before Chemify to try and get this to work. And that company, I don't want to talk about it too much, but the company's still going and, and they're doing great things in a different area. Um, but um, the vision wasn't quite what I wanted. And so I thought I'd try, try again. And this time I needed to be in charge. I needed to, to have the vision, get the money, put my weight behind it and just show people that I was willing to take a risk. And uh, it's worth it because even if I fail, and let's face it, the chances are I'm going to fail, but they're decreasing every day. I get other smart people to give me money, time, intelligence, right? So my job now is just to find all the smart people and then I won't fail. So that's the journey. Um, so the reason I did it was I want to change the technology in the lab and change the chemists. And I want to get access to chemical space. 
And I also want to, to figure out how we can make an impact and make chemistry reproducible. And I want to do chemistry, what I suppose gene sequencing has done for biology. That's kind of hell of a ambition, right? But that's the aim. And the best way to do it is by starting Chemify and raising all the money I can and doing it bit by bit. And, and this is, I, I think, really interesting. You said something, academia is not how to build technology. No. Um, yeah, could you elaborate on that? I think that's kind of a provocative idea. So look, the way I was able to build my lab, um, I was super lucky or super good. Let's say lucky, right? Because if I say I'm super good, I'll just get told I was super lucky. I was able to get grant after grant after grant and lay them together and with support from my university. And I cannot understate how much Glasgow University have really kind of helped me. They did a couple of things that were really interesting. Number one, they let me hire PhD students from any discipline into a chemistry lab. So I was able to get roboticists and chemical engineers and mathematicians and physicists all under one roof, right? In the US, you, you find that really hard to do. And then you have to work for different bosses and collaborations are longer, take longer. So I actually had the dream in a way in that I was able to start creating the technology in, the, in a university because the university let me do this one thing. And also because I was able to layer the grants together. So the grants didn't beginning end and I went for this boom and bust, boom and bust, boom and bust. I was able to, I've been able to run a group with between let's say 30 and 70 people in that team continuously for at least 15 years, continuously funded. I've never got close to running out of money. Well, there was once I almost got close to running out of money, but that was because of a personal tragedy. And friend of mine stopped being creative for six months. I was doing other, th you know, thinking about other things. But I, I picked up the ball again, and that was quite hard. But I'd always been consistent in transferring technology from postdoc to student, student to postdoc. You know, got them collaborative, using collaborative server, using these tools. Don't forget how to build electronics. Don't forget how to do the drawings. I promise we'll publish together. And I used to have a kind of three 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 step plan. You come in my lab as a postdoc or a student, depending postdoc, great, student, great. Student might need a bit of training and a bit of space, but give them everyone who comes in a, a project that's collaborative, but with an existing project that's like finishing. So they get training. Then say, look, don't worry, you're working with this great team of people. I know it's not yours, but you might get a paper quickly and you are going to build a team like this and you decide who goes in your team. So you're going to have a, some period where you have your team doing your problem. So that's kind of, so you learn to collaborate then you do your crazy project or your deep, your deep dive project. You go deep, 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 collaborative, deep. And then as you're leaving the group, you get, you're allowed to go batshit crazy. And we dream up a batshit crazy project. You start and then the new person comes in and goes, oh yeah, this is a normal project. Just work on that. Right. And the cycle continues and that cycle has been brilliant. It's quite exhausting. It's quite at the mercy of funding councils. I have basically taken funding from every single legal entity. No shady funding, by the way, so don't ask. Thank um, you for the clarification. Yeah, um, that I can find to keep the group going. But there is a point where I now wanted to get industry and investors to come in. And I think investors, because I've spotted an idea that I needed to grow super quickly, the number one mechanism to do it is venture capital. And I realized venture capital is the most powerful way to basically make explosive changes in the universe. So I went for it. That is something, you know, we definitely recognize for our founders. 
think that initial VC impulse really takes their technology forward. Can you speak maybe to what was particular about uh, the UK? So you've spoken already about the U- University of Glasgow. Is there anything about the ecosystem when you were spinning out that supported um, the whole project? Or instead, was there something lacking that in retrospect would have helped so much um, if it were there? So uh, I don't, I'd say, look, obviously the UK investment scene needs to get better because we don't take risk. But actually, the nice thing about the UK scene is I was able to build a critical mass research group in the UK that I'm not sure I would be able to do in the same way in the US, right? Um, And all I did, I figured, well, if I can't get the investment in the UK, I'll just get on a plane and go to the US and keep asking. And at some point, they're either going to give me the money or or, or just when they tell me to go away, I'll say, why? And uh, and then they say, well, this reason. And then I, I, you know, I keep doing it, keep going back. And in the end, it kind of worked out. Um, The UK doesn't have the right or necessarily it's not the right. It doesn't. It has actually quite a good track record in London and Cambridge doing pretty well. Oxford should do a lot better. I don't know why they're not. It may be they're rowing too much. I have no idea, right? But maybe, but let's say the Southeast is doing pretty well. There are some other places that are coming up. My dream is to hopefully not just be the, I don't know if we'll be the first billion dollar company that comes out of Glasgow, but we're not going to be the last. And I want to make us the smallest one, right? Let's let's see how many other companies and, and how many other people can follow us. So I think there are the good points are. I have a quick follow up on that actually. Yeah. yeah what yeah, do you think it? Yeah. What 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 does it take uh, to create that ecosystem that's going to be able to generate companies like that? I mean, is it just a matter of setting an example? Is it also about having alumni from Chemify go back and start new companies? Is it is the next company out of Glasgow also going to be a chemistry company, or is there something more happening, something afoot in Glasgow? <laughs> I've got my next company plan actually for full disclosure, which is to make an AGI out of chemistry. The only AGI that I know exists is in a, is the human brain. That might not come, and it might not be that I do that directly. It might be some of my group members do it. So one of the so that I, wasn't just a prediction. That was you're just informing us. This is what the future will look like. Yeah, I don't think it's. I think AGI. I think well, let's not call them AGI. Let's call them a G, let's call a general intelligence machine. I don't think we're making silicon right now. It needs something else. But going back to that, what do we need to do? So I think there's a number of things. Um, um, I think that we need to create the paths in academia and business startup and industry to be much more porous, right? One of the things I want to do in Glasgow and all around the world at the same time, although I, you know, investors worry about that, research funders worry about that, is I want to start a non-profit to make sure that all the chemists in the world can get access to robotics for doing experiments, right? Not Chemify. Chemify stuff is invested, proprietary, top secret, right? But if some of the the frameworks we develop is a bit like HTML, and that creates so much more value ability to generate because we make these underpinning foundations, maybe joint between academia, industry, and nonprofits, we'll be able to do something else. So I'm, I'm going to try and do it all, but right now I'm in billion dollar company mode. But in the back of my head, I've got how do I build a community, right? And then also how's that community feedback to academia? And I don't think they exist in a, in a, in a vacuum. I think you have academia, industry, as an established industry, startups, and your nonprofit. And that square is a very important thing for people to ability, for ability to move between those nodes almost interchangeably. 
So what I want to do is just create enough noise to say, well, Lee did it. He's not, he's not very special. Ah, therefore I can do it. That's cool. And just encourage people to take that risk. One of the things that I've been successful in academia is like we discussed earlier offline is like, I'm told I'm stupid like 20 times a day. So when someone says I'm stupid, I'm like, why? And I, oh yeah, good point. Okay, fine. All right. I'm talking nonsense about AI on Twitter again. What's wrong? Okay, correct. Fine, fine, fine. I'll go there and check, integrate that, and then be better the next day. So I think this kind of, in the US, it's a much, very um, Socrates type of attitude. Yeah. And in the US, that's how startups work so well, right? No one is, no one's afraid of failure. Well, people are afraid of failing, but they are trying their best, right? Whereas I think in the UK, we need to just give people a little bit more um, uh, emphasis on like, it's okay to try. What's worse, not to try or to try? Well, if you're not gonna try because you fear of failure, that's silly. So I think we need to do that more. Um, I think what you guys are doing is great. There seems to be a lot more entrepreneurial programs around. There's also funders, student funders around. I mean, one of the guys that joined Chemify was working with Create a Fund, right? Which I think was really great. And then just having together, the, there's obviously a vibrant scene in, in Germany and France and increasingly in Switzerland as well as the UK. So I just think we can just, the world is getting smaller and we should kind of work together to kind of build these, these things. But all I can do is lead by example and be as loud as possible about, you know, the willingness to try and to make the case. And at the end of the day, you have to be willing to communicate your vision on so many different levels to so many different people 24 hours a day that um, that takes a degree of mentorship, trial and error, and, and just, just determination. Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly requires enormous amounts of energy. And I think we're all grateful that you uh, expend it on such an interesting mission. Uh, I also would point out that we do have chapters in all those places you mentioned, Germany, France, Switzerland, and the UK. Uh, so really excited to be kicking off our, our nucleate Europe community. Um, you mentioned failure. I have a question that it's impossible to fail. Uh, so so just try your, your best at it, I suppose. Um, which is, you know, we talked a lot about chemistry and biology and entrepreneurship. Um, and one thing that we're fascinated by is what kind of non-scientific, maybe non-technical aspects of life really inspire people to take on these unconventional paths. Um, so my question to you is, what is a non-biotech, non-chemistry thing, whatever it may be, that you just can't stop thinking about these days? A non-biotech, non... Um, I mean, that, do I reveal my the fact I have no other things in my head? I'm, I, I, That's okay. I think a lot about existence. Okay. Why and it is kind of related to my deep mission. It's like what it's almost a little bit like the meaning of life. Why why do things exist? Okay, and also I think a lot about because um, I'm a very direct person. Like nuance used to be very lost on me, but now I've learned occasionally to shut the hell up, listen, pause, and find nuance in what other people are saying. And I love doing that. It's like if I just shut the hell up sometimes. And listen to what people aren't saying you can begin to learn a lot and it's not big you know i slightly on the spectrum and all these excuses now you can just actually shut up and listen and so i'm learning to listen a lot it's really interesting because people have a lot of interesting things to say so i'm fine are the two topics create uh, connected the meaning of life and learning to to listen 
Um, not, not that deeply, but I do think people have very interesting motivations. I love to understand what makes an individual an individual. Are individuals making their own decisions in their conscious brain? Are they reacting to stimuli? Are they in reptile mode, lizard brain mode? And it's, I'm super interested because people are much more interesting than they are not, if you know what I mean. Like I find myself saying, oh yeah, most people are boring, but actually no, they're not boring. My ability to pass the information is limited and therefore I'm putting them in a bucket of boring where actually I should pay attention. So I'm and actually talking to investors, it's kind of taught me to kind of pay attention because they're all different. Everyone has a different story and they're trying to figure them out, right? It's like, what is it you want me to tell you? It's like, it's like, go like at me, it's like, can you just give me the money? Be much more efficient. They're like, no, we have a thesis. So just getting to know people and understand their motivations away from the investment, the science and the deepness is kind of interesting. You know, someone said to me, we don't live in a, in a transactional economy. We live in a relationship economy. And that's actually very true, right? It's like, you know, we all trust each other. You know, you asked me to, you know, we had, so and I had a chat, could we come on the podcast? This is kind of interesting. I was like, oh, that seems good. And you guys are doing really good stuff. So I trust you. And you're like, well, come on and tell us, you know. So it's all about building those relationships and understanding what people want. Ultimately, humanity is about, humanity wants to get more knowledge. The more knowledge we get, the better we're going to be. You speak about this upfront aspect and also actively looking for constructive criticism. Do you think there's other parts of like traits of yourself that initially you thought were atypical, but then in the end ended up driving you in your career and providing a lot of value to you in a way that you wouldn't have suspected? I, I'm certainly a new I'm discovering nuance later in life and I'm quite proud of that because I think if I spent my younger life worrying, I would never have done anything. So I would try and encourage people not to worry too much. Of course, don't go on social media and be racist or anything, like even for a joke or anything like that, because that's kind of annoying. But I would say, don't be afraid of being slightly direct because, you know, it's hard, right? It's hard to, so one of the things I've always done very, very clearly is I've always been brutally honest about my agenda and why my agenda is X. And that for me is a kind of, a served me very well because, normally people will say normally most people are super nice and they're willing to tolerate a little bit and say they might take me aside and say no actually i'm not aligned to that agenda but i am interested in this and then you get to make a decision oh that's a good idea i didn't think of that before okay yeah i can do that i can see some value in me doing that and by having that direct conversation you're not spending ages because my eq is super low or was super low i mean you know it's maybe like and i can not intuit what they want and does that fit so yeah, so my directness early on caused me a lot of problems, but actually it gave me more opportunities and problems. Yeah, on the topic of nuance, we're going to leave this and say, Lee Cronin says to be innovative, you have to stop rowing, close all the boat clubs. That'll be the only chunk out of uh, the podcast. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> one, one other, I guess, um, side question I have is whether you find beauty in simplicity or in complexity. And I ask this question in part because assembly theory has this whole conceptualization of the buildup of complexity and whether what drives you, you know, in your scientific admiration, even in, you know, your personal um, endeavors, is it simplicity or complexity that maybe fascinates you the most? Um, it, is, it is both. And it is fascinating that something as deep as assembly theory is so simple, right? It's not a complicated theory, right? It's basically a, it's a leap. And lots of people think it's a leap too far still. 
but it's a very simple theory that allows us to explain why evolution works. And yet, you know, you've got these two kind of different um, areas of science, physics, which says there can be no causation, doesn't need, no causation is needed. And in evolution, if there's no causation, there's no evolution. And what, what assembly theory says is like, there's these very simple rules that create memories in some machinery. We don't know how, it just allows you to identify them, that you can get them later. But that complexity builds up in such a way um, so you can understand it. And so if you look at a cell, like a, one of, under a microscope and you see the cell divide, you see that object divide in front of you, but that isn't just an object that's like a few microns in diameter, 100 microns. It is 4.2 billion years deep in time. And so when you think of that, it's like, oh my God, this is a connection between me right now and the origin of the earth. And all that information has kind of gone up through that lineage. And so for me, that's kind of the complexity is then suddenly understandable and I respect it. And, it, you know, it's a bit like how evolutionary contingency is really odd, right? There are some things in evolution you would not do. I don't think we would have a spleen if we were designed, right? You know, it's like we wouldn't do that. Um, but it is fascinating. So I love simplicity because I I love being able to explain to people in terms that we all agree on about what the idea is. And then I love the fact that something that my trivial mind can come up with, like truly like I'm not very smart. So if I can come up with like a little thing and it makes sense and I can do bigger things, that's that's kind of awe inspiring. So that's, I, so I love that. So I guess it's because every day I want to wake up smart and every day I wake up not smart, but I wake up smarter maybe. So that's kind of my very personal take on it. I don't know if it makes sense, but it's kind of like, that's why I love using simplicity to generate complex things because it makes me feel like I've actually had some merit in the world in science. Well, I love that as maybe the place to end it. Uh, we're really grateful for your, I think making our audience a bit smarter and sharing your ideas and story. Um, and and uh, I think your, your quote earlier was quite quite moving for me. If Lee can do it, he's not very special. Therefore, anybody can do it. Um, and uh, and we that's sort of our, our goal in a sense is that folks listening to this Signal podcast uh, do feel inspired that they really can take their ideas and dreams from the lab and, uh, and turn them into something real and scale them uh, and make an impact in the world. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for having me. It's going back to the question. It's like when someone says you can't do something, there's just one question you have to keep asking them on repeat. Why not? Why not? Why not? Keep asking. In the end, they're going to go, screw it. Of course you can do it. What else can you do, right? Why won't Chemify be a billion-dollar company? Tell me why not. Okay, right. We'll get the customers. Oh, not enough growth area. We'll go there. You know, just keep going. So we'll see. <laughs> All right. Why not? Lee, thank you so much for your time. We're really grateful. Thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, and I hope to speak to you soon again.